0: Ephesians chapter 1, and as I promised a couple of weeks ago, I would call somebody randomly and ask them to come up and quote uh, the first two verses, and I know some have actually gone further, so I won't embarrass anybody, but uh, if anybody would like to uh, follow in the footsteps of Nesia, you're welcome to do that. I know you're all afraid. Huh? Okay, two verses. Go ahead, Sam. You can do it there, wherever you want. Um, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, um, sorry, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, the sanctuary of Ephesus. It's not as easy as she makes it look. No. <laughs> the sanctuary of Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, anybody know the next two? If you don't yet, then uh, this is your assignment for the coming week. And I really want to encourage you, if, you, you know, if you've seen a young girl like that go through so many verses, such large words, and say them so clearly, and with such emphasis, I think you, uh, you can do it as well. So Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 should be your assignment for this week as far as um, uh, memorization. Uh, Earlier this year, we planned to do something different this summer. We were planning to do a series on the attributes of God, and instead we have chosen to study the book of Ephesians. But here in the book of Ephesians, we have some wonderful glimpses of the attributes of God. And uh, certainly in the first chapter, we see the grace of God, the wisdom of God, the mercy of God, and the love of God. But this first chapter, uh, there is a very strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God. What does that mean? What is the sovereignty of God? Well, it means that all things are under God's rule. They are under God's control. And nothing happens, nothing happens in the entire universe without His direction and without His permission. What can, um, he can do whatever he pleases, and what he pleases is always good, and it's always right because his purpose is perfect. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, we read that according to his own purpose, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. We want to look this morning at the sovereignty of God in this chapter in just two verses, but I want to look at some other passages as well. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to do a little bit of study back and forth between Old and New Testament. Isaiah chapter 46, uh, verse 9, is the beginning point, and we're going to look at that. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 says this Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God. And there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. That refers to the sovereignty of God. God will do whatever he wants to do. And he's going to use whomever he wishes to use. And in this particular case, when he says calling a bird of prey from the east, that man, he's actually referring to a king, King Cyrus. And so I want you to just tuck that away in the back of your mind for a minute or two. And we're going to come back to this guy again in a few minutes. But just... The Lord has made it very plain that he is going to use this king for his purposes, and this king is not a believer. God's purposes, when you talk about the sovereignty of God, God's purposes can never be thwarted. God is never taken by surprise. He alone has the power, and he has the right to govern all things, always, and without exception. Someone has said, God is not merely sovereign de jure, meaning in principle, but sovereign de facto. Which means God is sovereign in practice, in fact. The sovereignty of God is not some pie-in-the-sky doctrine that we go, oh yeah, he's sovereign. I don't know what that means to me, but he's sovereign. But it has tremendous practical implications for us. For God has chosen us. And he has purposed to save us, and the Bible says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Jesus Christ. Jude chapter 1 verse 24 and 25 says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before his presence, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. God is sovereign. And that also means that nothing can stand in His way. No one can snatch us from His hand. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing under the earth can ever separate us from Him. And He causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. His purpose will be accomplished. Why? Because God is sovereign. It is a glorious attribute that allows God to be God. And there is no one else who is sovereign. There there, um, is nothing in all of creation that can be sovereign. God alone is sovereign. And God alone will cause all things to work together uh, for the good pleasure of His will. And that's why in Ephesians 1, 11 we read, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. When I was a kid, we used to have a lot of fun in the neighborhood. We never had, um, I tell my kids that we had TV. It was black and white. That was before color was invented in the world, you know. And uh, we didn't have remotes, we didn't know what those were. And we spent most of our time, instead of in front of games and, and uh, computers and, and cell phones, we actually would play with real people. Our Facebook was really a face in front of us, you know, and we would play. And, and as a kid, I don't know if you ever did this, but I used to boast about my dad to all the neighborhood kids. And I would say something like this, my dad's better than your dad. You ever do that as a kid? And then I would give some reason why he was so much better. They would, you know, come back at me and they would say, with some lame reason why they thought their dad was better. But I would always have a one-up on them. I would always say, yeah, but my dad does this, or my dad is better because of this. And uh, I can truly say this morning, my God is better than anyone or anything by a magnitude that cannot be measured. No one can one-up you on that. If you know God and He is your God, there is no one, nothing, that can one-up you on that. He is Lord, He alone is God. Listen to God speak about Himself. And it's not boasting. It's the unvarnished truth. God cannot lie. And He is telling the truth about Himself. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and He who formed you from the womb I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. "...who confirms the word of his servant, and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says," here it is again, of this same character, "...of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure." Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Well, it's enough to make you fall down and worship him. When I see men and women made in the likeness and the image of God, cheering for a sports team, boasting about an athlete, admiring a Hollywood star, extolling the virtues of a billionaire, or tooting their own horn, I take up the words of Isaiah the prophet and I challenge you, Isaiah 40 Verse 9, behold your God. Verse 12, Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its be sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are accounted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmiths cast silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root on the earth when he will blow on them, And they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. But the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. How can we praise anyone but the Lord? And now Paul takes pen in hand and he rises up under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he calls on God's people everywhere to praise the Lord. And that's what he does in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Um, So in front of you, I think you already have the handout. I want you to use this over the next few weeks. And I want to show you something as we go through this uh, passage. And we're going to highlight different parts of it uh, today and then through the following weeks. Today I want to concentrate on one subject. And that is God who is sovereign. Sovereign. And so we want to look at the Father who is mentioned here, God the Father, and I want you to just underline, circle, or whatever it takes to make you see the pattern that, uh, that flows here in this chapter. We're going to read four, verses 3 through 14. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago to you that this in the Greek um, uh, Bible is one complete sentence. 3 through 14 is one whole sentence. Um, in our Bibles, it's broken down a little bit differently, but let's take a look at it. So here's what we want to look at. We're, we're emphasizing here God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father, that's where to first uh, underline it or mark it, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, referring back to God the Father, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He, God the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him, God the Father. And I said, absolutely. And the third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth, it's unending. God continues to bless us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. I'm not waiting. I've already got them. The nation of Israel was God's chosen earthly people, and to them he promised physical or earthly blessings. He promised them land, and he he mapped out the territory of the land that they were to receive. He promised them a king to sit on David's throne. Faithful Jews were promised long life, many children, abundant crops, protection from their enemies. But those who were in the church are God's heavenly people. And our blessings are spiritual rather than material blessings. The blessings are in the heavenlies. What does that mean? That it means it has to do with the realm of heaven. The things that are important in heaven. The things that are appropriate for heaven. Let me illustrate it this way to you. I'm a Canadian citizen. And I carry around with me. I've shown you this before, I know. Oh, do I have it? Oh, I do. Okay. I'm, uh, I'm required to carry this at all times in case I get stopped by Homeland Security or somebody else like that. And on this card that I've had in my wallet and carried around with me for 30 some odd years, I have this card and it says right on it, Re- I know it doesn't look like me, but it really is. That's me. Resident alien. Okay. What does that mean? I'm from outer space, another planet, I'm just passing through. That's what it means. And it plainly says resident alien. It it tells me something about my status here. I don't belong. You go, yeah, that's right. You don't belong here. (laughs) I don't belong. I'm a foreigner. I'm an alien. This is not my home. But I travel also on a Canadian passport. And that tells me that I am from the Dominion of Canada. And uh, as a result of being a Canadian, I have the full rights and privileges offered to me by the Canadian government, even though I am living in the United States. The same thing is true of you when you travel outside of this country. You go out and you have all the rights and privileges afforded to you as an American citizen, even though you're passing through somebody else's country. My body tells me that I am a resident alien on Earth. I, I'm still stuck here, I'm here. I'm a foreigner, I'm an alien, and this is not my home. But the fact is that I am in Christ, and that tells me that I am um, a child of a king, and heaven is my home, and I have all the full rights and privileges afforded to me by God my Father, even though I still dwell on earth in this earthly temple. My citizenship is in heaven, but my feet are still on earth. But my blessings are spiritual. And we're going to see as Paul elaborates uh, more about this in the following weeks that uh, these blessings are amazing. And we're going to look at the first blessing now, verse 4. It says this, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. This is the starting point of God's divine purpose. He chose us. Do you realize that, believer? God chose you. God chose you. He chose you. He chose me. He chose us. We call this the doctrine of election. A lot of people are afraid of the doctrine of election. Don't be afraid of it. It's taught very plainly and very clearly in the Scripture. And it literally means this, that God picked out... He chose you. He selected you for Himself and He selected individuals for Himself that He would bless and He would place in His church with the purpose of showing kindness to them and lavishing His grace upon them. He chose you. When did He do that? Well, after I was good and I showed that I was okay with God and I tried to make things right with God. That's not how it worked. It had nothing to do with you. And how do I know it had nothing to do with you or your works? Because the Bible says in this passage, He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means that before creation was here, God had already selected you. He had already picked you. He had already chosen you. He had already picked you out for this blessing. God made a choice and it had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with me. His choice was based on one thing and that was his own sovereign will. End of story. And Paul is basically in this passage pulling back the curtains for us to see what the the, um, fellowship, if you will, of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as they communicated with one another and decided what they were going to do before the world was ever created. And this is what they were going to do. They were going to choose you in time. Verses 3 and 4 describe the past. That is what God did before the creation. Election took place before creation. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 6 through 11 describes His present work in redemption, that is in saving people. And verse 12 through 14 describes the future inheritance. The past, present, and future are all laid out for us here in these verses. But today we're just looking at the past. That's election. Now, if you ever have felt this in your life, many people do, that they need some meaning in life. You know, they, 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 they wake up one morning and they go, why am I here? What's my purpose for living? Is there some reason for my existence well, there is, if you know Christ. You're, the reason that you're here is because God chose you. God chose you. If you've ever wondered, you know, why am I here? How do I fit in the big picture? Here's the answer God chose you. People pay thousands and thousands of dollars to go see a psychiatrist or a therapist to tell them that they are somebody special. Well, I won't charge you a nickel this morning, and I want to tell you the same thing. You are somebody special because God chose you before the foundation of the world. You didn't need to apply. There was no contest to win. It had nothing to do with your works, your lifestyle, your heritage, whether you were homeschooled or not, raised in riches, raised in poverty. It was God's choice to elect you and make you part of the body of Christ, His church. God chose you before the foundation of the world. Does the Bible really teach election? I just read it. Yeah, it does. We don't need to be afraid of it. We need to embrace it, enjoy it. Praise God for it. Worship Him just as Paul does here in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Amen? Earlier in my message, I made reference to Cyrus. And I did so on purpose because it fits in a passage that clearly shows the sovereignty of God. That passage in in, um, Isaiah clearly describes the sovereignty of God and him accomplishing his, his own purposes for his own reasons. And nobody but nobody was going to stand in the way. And through the prophet Isaiah, God said that Cyrus was going to be, to be the instrument of God to free his people from bondage um, that had come upon them by the Babylonians. And he was going to allow them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That's quite a... Prophecy. It says in Isaiah forty four twenty-eight again, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now humor me as I show you something here. Just as God chose you before the foundation of the world, so God chose Cyrus before the foundation of the temple. But here's the problem. At the time of this prophecy, the Jews were still in Jerusalem. They hadn't been taken into captivity. Isaiah came to them warning them about what God was going to do. And uh, they were still in Jerusalem. There was still a temple. And there was nobody on the horizon named Cyrus. Nobody. He didn't exist. The major world power at that time were the Babylonians. But God elected Cyrus for a specific time and a specific place in history and God who is altogether sovereign caused all of the circumstances to come together for his own purpose and his own pleasure. God would see to it that um, his own will was accomplished and on time. Israel rebelled against God eventually and God sent the Babylonians in and they took the people captive the temple was destroyed, the walls were uh, broken down, and that was all being done by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So in order for God to fulfill this prophecy, he had to not only see the temple destroyed and the city destroyed and the people taken into captivity, but he had to then defeat the Babylonians, raise up another kingdom have a man in that kingdom whose name was Cyrus to go ahead and and change everything and send him back and rebuild. It all had to happen. And so, in order for God to fulfill his own prophecy, he had to have a set of parents who had a little boy. And they had to take out that baby book one day and start looking through names, like we all do. And they had to say, um, Adam, no. You know, Baal, no. Cyrus, I kind of like that one. And they named him Cyrus. They didn't know anything about the scripture. And he would have to be born at a specific time in history so that the events would happen on time because God made it very clear that these events would be fulfilled in 70 years. And this prophecy of Isaiah was actually prophesied 200 years before Cyrus was born. God, uh, Cyrus would also have to choose of his own free will to rise to power among the Medes and the Persians And he chose to defeat the Babylonians, and he was uh, brought into a position where he would be the one to free the people of God to go back and to rebuild the temple and to go back to the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah's prophecy, as I mentioned, was 200 years before Cyrus was born. Yet God called him by name. This is not just a simple matter of a prediction. It is God's sovereign election at work in real life, in real time. And God was seeing to it that everything was fulfilled just as he said. Now, if God can elect a wicked king to do his bidding 200 years before he's born, God is quite capable of electing you and me to be in his church before the foundation of the world. And that is precisely what he has done. Not only so, but God wrote your name down in the Lamb's book of life before creation even existed, before it began. In the end of Revelation, it says in verse 20, chapter 20, verse 15, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Paul says in another passage in Second 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Do I believe in election? Yes, I do. It's what the Bible teaches. Do I believe that God has chosen you, you who are in Christ? Yes, I do. And I believe he chose you, just as Paul said, before the foundation of the world. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, there's another reference here. It says this, Now when the Gentiles heard this, this is the gospel, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Do I believe in election? That's a good question. Yes, I do. But there's an even better question. And the question is this, Why did God elect me? Why did God choose you? That I don't know if I know the full and complete answer. But I'll give a stab at it here from this passage. Why did he do it? Paul begins to answer it here. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God's purpose in election is to take people who don't deserve it, who don't deserve his grace, don't deserve the riches of his grace, give it to them anyway and make them holy. Last uh, time we, we preached, I mentioned from the Scripture here that we are called saints. That is, holy. we are holy ones. We are set apart uh, for God. And we are called saints right now. God has set us apart for Himself. God chose us in eternity past. He is accomplishing His purposes right now in the present. And He is um, conforming you to the image of His Son, And he is able, the Bible says, to keep you from stumbling and to present you in the future faultless before his presence, uh, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And so, in one verse, Paul takes us from the eternity past to the present time and into the future. And he says, This is what God has in store for you by his election, by choosing you before the foundation of the world. And so in this one verse, road trip, we see God's purpose is to save a church, a body of believers for himself that he might present, as we see in chapter 5, verse 27, we're going to end with this, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. That is God's purpose in choosing you and choosing me, electing us before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and without blemish in his presence forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you today, we, um, our hearts are, are bowed in worship as we think of what you have done. And we say with Paul, blessed be the Lord, um, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ what a wonderful uh, glorious and overflowing um, thing this is Lord as we think about what you have done for us and as we look at the scripture over the next few weeks and see that it is just blessing upon blessing upon blessing we pray Lord that you would lift our hearts out of the doldrums lift our hearts out of um, wallowing in in looking at sin or looking at uh, our lives and see the amazing benefits that we have in Christ and that we might live in light of that. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.